Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Lords of Limited. My name is Ben Warney, and joining me on the line, as always, Mr. Ethan Companion Sachs. Ethan, can you taste the summer in the air? <laughs> is that what that is? That's what that is. It's wow. Beautiful school is out, but unfortunately, summer being here means this format is going away soon. I know. Yeah. So someone in our Discord was like, are you guys going to be doing like normal stuff for the Lord of the Rings set? And I was like, yeah, I think so. In my mind, I was like, oh, maybe it's like it was last summer where like Alchemy Horizons or whatever. Horizons Baldur's Gate was released in paper as like that commander set or whatever first. And then it came digitally different on Arena. I was like, oh, is it already out or something? I was like, no, but it is like in like two weeks. <laughs> we were like, oh, no, we had I thought we had like a month more of content with this format. I also thought we had a month more of content for this format. I was ready to podcast. Yeah, I was ready to podcast, too. And not that like we had specific things to touch on that. I'm like, oh, man, I feel like we never really talked about blah. I definitely feel like we talked about the full scope of the format. But there is a lot to unpack. I mean, I'm whatever, 140, maybe 150 drafts deep at this point, and I'm still having a blast. I, I'm I'm going to save my thoughts for a later take, but th this format is, is an all-timer for me. Ooh, all-timer. It's got the at. Is it going to get the go? We'll see. It's, it's got the at. It's going to get the go. So yeah, we're going to be wrapping uh, up March of the Machine. Also, why is it March of the Machine? Not the, What's the machine? It's like a hive entity, right? Uh, I don't, I, I, that's more than I know. I would never have pulled the phrase hive entity from the ether there. But, I mean, that uh, is just my that is my guess. I don't know anything about the lore, but like an Ender's Game kind of thing, you know? Have you ever read that? No. Oh, Orson Scott Card. You got to check it out. Great book. One of the great books growing up of teenage, like overcoming adults being idiots, whatever. Beautiful book. Nice. Okay. Yeah, there's like a group of aliens in that called buggers. I guess there are plural there. But the, anyway, it's like a queen hive mind situation. I assume that's what it's like here with March of the Machine. Okay, that's fair. Yeah, I, I just like always for a million years would have thought it was March of the Machines. But no, just one, just the machine. Anyway, so we're sending off March of the Machine, aka Mom, in Lords of Limited fashion this week with our 50 takes in 50 minutes episode, a great way to wrap up the format in present day and also a great resource for folks to go back and check it out when we get flashback drafts. We've got Innistrad Midnight Hunt flashback drafts this week. Ben, are you uh where does that weigh for you in uh in all timer status? Are you going back? Are you dipping your toes? I have not dipped my toes. This is format is way too good for me to want to play Innistrad Midnight Hunt. And I also just in general am less interested in flashback formats than most people, I think. But my oldest brother did tell me did a flashback draft and uh, listened to the old Lords of Limited 50 takes to get prepped for it. Yeah, that's how you do it. Um, so yeah, we'll be sending it off. we got 50 takes coming up for you, a few housekeeping things before we get into that. First things first is the Patreon page. Patreon.com slash Lords of Limited is where folks can go to give back to the show if they so choose. You get a bunch of sweet stuff over at Patreon for giving back to the show, depending on what tier you give back at. Baseline, everybody who gives back gets access to the Lords of Limited Discord. New set season coming right around the corner. That's a great time to get in on the Discord to be able to just chat with some like-minded, limited individuals about card previews. Preview season is awesome. Once the full spoiler drops, it's great to be able to compare and contrast. These are my top three commons. What do you think about these? What do you think about the archetypes? People are building skeletons. They're doing all that good stuff. And then... The full set drops, people get their hands on the cards, and there's more discussions happening in terms of, hey, I drafted this in my FNM, or this is my sealed pool, what are your thoughts? It's just a really awesome place. It's hopping, it's popping, you want to get in on that. And then a lot of other great things as you move up the reward tier ranks, get access to the episode a day in advance, get access to the show notes if you want to see it in paper form. That's the real cheater for the uh, 50 takes episodes, I got to say. Sure, you could go back and listen to it, take 50 minutes. You just got the document there. <laughs> you're you're ready in like two minutes, baby. You just, Easy game. Just, just scan that thing. Yeah, that's a that's a cheat sheet right there. And then all the way up the reward tier ranks, get access to monthly coaching sessions with me or Ben. So if any or all of that sounds of interest to you, head on over to patreon.com slash lords of limited. And of course, we want to shout out our new patrons the first week that they joined. So this week, we are welcoming Guy, Matt, Ben, Jonathan, Michael, Jacob, Never Stop Swoopin, Amazing Mucka, <laughs> Coleman, Sam, Scott, and John. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We really appreciate your support. Yeah, cannot say thank you enough. Do we think Never Stop Swoopin is a shout out to Ether Swooper? I, I mean, it has to be, right? Love that card. 
Yeah. Show is also brought to you by Cool Stuff Inc. Coolstuffinc.com, where they've got cool stuff in stock, and that in stock stuff maybe soon going to be Tales of Middle Earth. Is that the name of the set? Wow. I guess so. I was just, I was like, it's the Lord of the Rings set. I'm pretty sure it's called <laughs> Tales of Middle Earth. That makes sense. Like Lord of the Rings colon mm. T M E. I have no idea. Wow. Blowing the Cool Stuff Inc. ad read here. Truly, yeah, you're really selling people on it. <laughs> they want to know all the abbreviations first. But please, when you go to CoolStuffInc.com, they're going to have Lord of the Rings pre-orders in soon if they don't already. Plus, March the Machine's going away. You need to get that sealed product while it's hot, put it in a case in your closet, and then bust it out a couple years from now to draft one of the at formats, maybe one of the go <laughs> at formats. We'll see here. And when you do purchase anything at CoolStuffInc.com, please use checkout code LOL, all caps, to get 5% off anything in the store that you purchase, as well as, most importantly, from our perspective, please let them know that we sent you over there. Boom. Ben, before we get into the 50 takes, am I allowed to have, you did introduce me as Ethan Companion Sacks, am I allowed to have a little companion corner section of the episode here? Oof. Really tried hard to keep this off the podcast listeners, but (laughs) I suppose I will give you the floor. Okay, so very exciting news in terms of what I've been doing with companions in the format. I did companion all 10. I forced my way into an Obosh deck. Obosh in the companion slot featuring Obosh in the main deck. The deck did not do well. It went 1-3. But I have still companioned all 10 companions in the format. Do you think you're the only human being on Earth to do that? That's my feeling. I can't imagine. Like the amount of obsession with companions combined with the amount of drafts I've done. Though someone did reply to me on Twitter and say that they, I think still, they're like 9 of 10. So I may not be the only person. I think I may be the only person to have trophied with Kahira in the <laughs> companion slot, sure. <laughs> which I did earlier this week, which was pretty incredible. And I also, Ben, I'm sorry to say I'm going to bring some data, but it's my own personal data onto the show here. Um, so I was curious about my obsession with companions. I was like, it does like, yeah, I feel like this is a really good thing to be doing, but is it actually? So I, I went through all of my 17 lands logs, pulled out all of the decks where I companioned, and looked at my respective win rates with companions and without companions. And the difference is pretty stark. When I checked it earlier, it was at an 8% increase in terms of my Ooh. win rate when I companion versus not. I love I shared this with Ben and he was like, yeah, of course you're happier when you companion. <laughs> Bro, my mood is not accounting for an 8% <laughs> bump in win rate. It's just a good thing to do. I also discovered that Lutri and Gigantha, I think, are a bit of a trap for me, but We'll chat about that a little bit later in the episode. Well, here's what I want to know. What percentage of your drafts did you companion in? It's pretty high. It's like one in five. Wow. I did companion some more than I would have just because, you know, I know you and you're pushing companions and it either went great or terribly for me. No in between. Either trophied or like 0313. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's pretty close. I mean, some of my Yorians were like three threes, four threes, but I think that's pretty close. It was either like six threes or trophies or just abysmal 0313 territory all right all right well with that thank you for for giving me the floor there for a second um let's get into our 50 takes let's get 50 minutes on the clock and we'll kick things off with point number one march of the machine limited has it all power synergy build arounds streamlined aggro five color soup and more this set really i mean as we said We could have podcasted about this for a month more and I think not been scraping the bottom of the barrel. Oh, for sure not. There's just so much to talk about. And I think the coolest thing about that statement there is none of those things are clearly the obvious. You should try to do this like streamlined Mm -hmm. aggro is the best. And then you could play five color soup or five color soups the best. And you could try to play some sort of synergy deck. Depending on what you saw in the draft and what rares you open, it was definitely right to do different things every single time. Well, and I also think, as as we'll get to in a second, in our second point, that I think preferences played a bit of a role in this. Like, we're very careful in our podcasting, I think, to not say this is bad, right? Or this is unplayable. Just like, we're actually not interested in doing this thing. People but hear I, us say this know, is I bad. I know. People this hear that. does not say that. There's no nuance in the, to the listeners. But yeah, that, that I think depending <laughs> on what you wanted to do, 
you really could do it, you know? Oh, for sure. Absolutely. Number two, March of the Machine was the closest to cube draft that we've ever had in a non-masters set. And this is like often a descriptor for formats, right? We play it for a week. We're like, well, this is like cube. But this time for real. <laughs> but this time for real, right? Because of a lot of different factors. I think that's often about power level. But the power level also led to other things making it feel like cube, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So for example, in cube, one of the things is you shouldn't take expensive cards highly, like things that are four or five mana were very replaceable. And I think that was absolutely true here. There were a lot of good four and five drop creatures that you just never wanted to pick because they were a dime a dozen. A four and a five drop really needed to be excellent before you were interested in picking it highly because you could just put cards in those mana value slots that did work. Right. Yeah, it's like, what was that card? Fearless Scald, the like three, two double strike backup. That card was very good. I just never ended up with it in my deck because it cost five mana. And like, sure, were there other five drops that were worse than it? Yes. Markedly worse? No. And I could get my hands on them. Yeah, and other people just picked that card higher than me too. Yeah. I, yeah. So I think that the thing about the expensive spells, like really recognizing, like, you know, sometimes it'd be like, okay, yeah, I don't want to take expensive cards, but actually Noxious Gear Hulk is incredible in this cube. And that's a six drop worth taking. Same for this format of like, okay, yeah, I don't want to fill up on four fives and sixes, but Invasion of Fiora is incredible. And I'm going to take that, right? And stick to it. I also think that the, in terms of, you know, when we ever, Whenever we give advice to people on cube, it's like, you know, maybe go in and just draft mono red or mono white. And you can usually force your way into those decks. I think other than the top decks, other than like, you know, blue black, which you often could get your hands on because those colors ran deep, you could really just say like, I want to draft red white equipment. And you could probably end up with a deck that was functional in that archetype. Yes, for sure. You know, speaking of those replaceable six drops, I don't think this is a take anywhere. Warmed my heart that Phyrexian Gargantua held up. I agree. Yeah, I was surprised. Like, it took me a while, but every time that hit the battlefield for my opponents, I was like, that's a pretty big problem. <laughs> and then I just loved it because my red-black decks were always such low curves that I could always slot it in. Yeah, great card. Number three, the Multiverse Legends slot drastically upped the power level. And I think more importantly for us, the replayability of the format. Well, and a lot of that is due to the companions, right? The multiverse mm -hmm. legend slot, including the companions, was brilliant. I mean, whoever made that decision, because it just made the format so much more deep having those companions there. It was really, really fun. I mean, even, I mean, sure, there were some duds like whatever, Rada from, uh, from DMU, but I think even like Raph was such an interesting include. The white blue uncommon, like you could anthem your team, and if you uh, cast a spell, you could tap two creatures to draw a card. Like figuring out where that what kinds of decks that slotted into like sometimes it was really good in your blue white deck and sometimes it was like really not when you had like 18 creatures and figuring out like oh am i an aggressive deck am i defensive is this worth splashing I, I just thought i thought most of those cards were pretty darn interesting yeah completely agree number four march of the machine gave us a new card type battles which were not great yeah the bad ones were just really bad and i think that's a lot of the the four mana ones that were just so so underwhelming if you didn't flip them I'd like a, a true disaster if you didn't flip them yes and then there were also good ones that were insanely good like invasion mm -hmm. of amonkhet is just ridiculous it makes your life total four which is just absolutely miserable to play against over and over and over yeah i when you put it that way i don't know if we'd ever actually put invasions that were powerful in that those terms like the invasions that felt like if they flip you basically lose an invasion of amonkhet felt like that that it really does it really does make your life total four and the and we also never talked about the difference between the battle's defense counter being four or five was huge. huge like in, Invasion yeah. of Ragatha was a card that I liked a lot. That was the two in a red. Uh, ETBs deals four to a player or battle and then one to a creature they control. That card was good, but the five defense on it made me eventually just go like, no, I never have room for this because not being able to mow it down with a two attacks from a two power creature was just too big of a cost. I just never felt like I could flip it. Yeah, I agree with that for sure. And then there were cards like Invasion of Asgol, which was the black red sacrifice creature, or Invasion of Mercadia, the Thrill of Possibility variant. 
those were really good, but not game breaking. Those were the best designed battles, in my opinion. Yeah, I hope. I mean, I, I assume we will see battles in the future because it's a new card type. Like they're here to stay, I assume. Oh, I hope not. I hope they just tried it and we're like, eh, not really. Let's let's not do this anymore. Yeah, that's yeah, because we know that Watsi does that with their uh <laughs> their big investments here. So we'll see if that's the case. If we see more battles in the future, which I assume we will, I hope it's more in that sense. Like Cards that are good, but don't <laughs> drastically change your life total. Number five, battles are intrinsically powerful if you're ahead, but the format was so powerful that many of the ones that could have been good were simply not powerful enough to compete. You want to unpack that a little bit? Yeah, I think the poster child for this is Invasion of Zendikar. When we were coming into the format, this was the uncommon I was maybe the highest on the entire format. The three green, three defense, search up two basics. They come into play tapped, and then you flip it into a four four with vigilance haste that can tap to add a mana of any color. We thought it was like Beseju of whatever, the reach one from Neo, right? And it kind of is. Turns out that green decks just were bad at flipping it if you wanted the ramp effect, and then the decks that were good at flipping it didn't really want the ramp effect that much. So it was kind of disagreeing with itself in that sense but also by the time you flipped it the 4-4 didn't matter anymore because the format was so powerful right imagine a card that is the power level of four mana put two lands in a play and is a 4-4 creature if you accomplish x task that's crazy efficient rate right yeah but that wasn't good enough in this format, was not powerful enough. It was, it just wasn't consistent enough. That's the problem, right? And I shout out cards like even Invasion of Xerex, the white-blue bounce, or even more so Invasion of Kamigawa, the blue tap-a-thing, keep-it-tapped battle. Like, the difference between, sure, when you cast and flip that in the same turn, huge, really for Xerex. Kamigawa was kind of unexciting on both sides. But when you cast and don't flip those battles, you're paying four mana to bounce a thing, and that's it. And now you have this terrible mini game of like, am I supposed to attack this down to flip it? Am I supposed to just kill my opponent? Have I just wasted an entire card? It's just, just such a disaster. I think the battles that were the best were ones that ended up, it's been a while since we've talked like reasons, rewards, role players. Mm. The, the battles that were rewards were the best one. Like, mm. I think I'm higher on Invasion of Xerix than you, and I'm lower on it than I was. But mm -hmm. that... Being able to get that in a blue-white tempo deck was great. Like you're yeah. happily playing that in the four-drop slot in most blue-white tempo decks, but you don't have to have it for your deck to work, right? And I think I, I mean most of, if not all, of the two-mana battles I really liked, even if some of them were in undesirable color pairs like the blue-green invasion of Perulia, or I even I don't even remember what the red-green one is called because I think I Ergamon, I think never cast that one. But you know, inv <laughs> invasion of Asgol and invasion of Mercadia were probably two of my most drafted battles in the entire format. Well, I would say I hope battles don't come back, which probably again unrealistic hope, but at least not to this number of them, because I do think they drastically changed how the format and how the games played out, which was very cool for this one format. Mm -hmm. But it's a tough sell for me for that to be the case for every format going forward. Yeah, I doubt we will see them to this prevalence. Like, I'm assuming that this will be like War of the Spark was to Planeswalkers, not that that was where Planeswalkers debuted, but just in terms of their prevalence. And then we'll go back to a handful every set. Yeah. Number six, blue was the dominant color in the format. Preening champion, obvious powerhouse, but lots of surprises as well. I mean, Afara's dispersal, I think we'll have a chance to chat about that a little later, but really overperformed at least our expectations. I don't think either of us had those in our top blue commons. Eyes of Gitaxius, which we sort of sort of shouted out as a as an early contender for being compared to Seraph's Packmate and kind of played out that way. Assimilate Essence. I took a hard stance in the crash course about I'm not getting duped by these kinds of uh these kinds of counterspells anymore. Well, dupe me once, shame <laughs> on you, but assimilate essence really performed like blues commons were very impressive and, and also at higher rarity as well yeah i would also say i don't think it was the be all end all and i think there was a point in the format about a month in where people really figured it out i really felt like it to me it was after the pro tour like mm -hmm. that week after the pro tour it was really hard to get into blue and it was really hard to get into blue most drafts after that i mean you still got random drafts here and there where your table didn't know what was up and you could draft blue black or blue white with impunity but i think most of the time, blue was pretty contested then. And I think when we ended up in blue, because I don't know if it was hard to end up in blue, but it was hard for blue to be your 
main color. Like often it was the support to your black cards or your white cards or whatever. And that was actually fine because the six blue cards you were able to find or the seven blue cards you were able to find plus a couple gold cards were still quite strong. Yes, completely agree. Number seven, the official Lords of Limited color power rankings. Coming in at number one, clearly going to be blue. Number two, black. Number three, white. Number four, red. And bringing up the rear for us, that is not to say that it is bad, but bringing (laughs) up the rear for us is green. It's just not where we want to be a lot of the time. And I I don't think it's as reliable. And a lot of the things have to go right for you to get a good green deck that can compete with both the busted card strategies and the good aggro decks. You know what? We haven't really talked about or I just kind of realized we were pretty all synced up on this format. We didn't have to do a lot of dickering and dealing with the old show notes this time around. Sometimes there's a negotiation period before we start recording. That's true. Yeah, we didn't have a lot of negotiation periods. That's right. Well, I think also we sort of, we had a lot of like, I'm going to like, this is something I feel strongly about, so I'm going to talk about it. But yeah, not a lot of pushback from the other person. We agree too much, Ben. (laughs) It's a problem. I also think each color had kind of its own thing that it was good at. Mm. Blue really had a lot of raw card quality, just Great, excellent rate cards. Black gave you a ton of good cheap creatures and unconditional removal or conditional removal in sometimes. But removal, big in the format, and black brought both of those things. White gave you a lot of ways to be aggressive, especially when you paired it with blue or white. And a lot of tricks as well to help you push that aggressive stuff. Red, great aggressive color. And then green gave you fixing. I think that was Mm -hmm. what green was best at, letting you play all of the cards. Agree. Number eight. Instant speed convoke is broken. This like, I don't know why I didn't pick up on this one. Like the spoiler dropped or the crash course. It didn't take long for me to be like, how is this fair? You're like, it's not at all. Like, why are you able to draw two cards for free? Like blue got it the most with meeting of minds and, and more importantly, artistic refusal. Because one of the things about artistic refusal is like, you could kind of read your opponent for it. There were some times where you could punish them for like, you're pressuring them. They have five creatures and one untapped land. And you're like, okay, I'm going to cast an important spell here. Do you tap out? And then I get to mow you down. Or like you could be put in a tough spot and and misplay with that card. But its power level could not be denied. Finally rewarded for casting spells pre-combat. Let's go. True, true. Shadow Source also another one in red. That one was fine. I think mm-hmm. that was an appropriately costed convoke spell. But then mm-hmm. there were tricks like aerial boost, cut short in white that were just amazing in different styles of white decks and then at uncommon you got just incredible removal spells like collective nightmare and stoke the flames and not to say again like you could pick up on these you could read your opponent for them just very hard to then have some profitable outcome for you once you did that well and the cool thing about this is this wasn't the best thing to do in the format somehow still despite Uh it being broken right the format was high enough powered that you could have cool things like this. Like the first time I instant speed convoked, I was like, oh my God, I was startled. (laughs) I was like, whoa, this is not fair. But it still, you know, is just something that's in the format rather than something that's dominating the format because of how powerful it is because everything was really powerful. Right, yeah, that's a really good point. Number nine, incubate was a powerful mechanic that rewarded planning your turns ahead and maximizing your mana. This also saw a rules change about tokens being able to flip. Tokens can have backsides now. Tokens can have backsides now. Note if you copy battles. <laughs> not if they exile. Not if they exile themselves. So uh, want wah for my arena open run. I tried to flip mm. a battle that I'd copied and lost as a result. But yeah, Incubate was, I think, a very well-designed mechanic. I think it rewarded gameplay a lot. Just knowing what was going to happen a couple turns down the road and how you were going to spend your mana. It also let you put pretty aggressive costs on large bodies without feeling like it got out of control. Right. Like, I mean, we'll talk about Converter Beast a little later, but, you know, getting a 5-5 attached to that or a 5-5 attached to Tangled Skyline, that sort of cycle of enchantments that we'll talk about in just a second. Number 10, um, Corruption of Tawashi was an excellent build around for Incubate and Phyrexian cards. This was the four and a blue, Incubate four, and then whenever you transform a permanent for the first time each turn, you may draw a card. That was like just really cool for Incubate, but then also your Phyrexian flip cards, but also your battles coming into play flipped would draw you a card. Like Corruption of Tawashi was sweet. Yeah, once it got going, it was 
basically game winning, but you did have to do some work. I think mm-hmm. it was an unassuming build around that actually mm-hmm. was, I think, a very good build around. Really agree. And I I liked this whole cycle of uncommons. I know I think I'm probably higher on the black one, the gift, more than than certainly you, and I think more than just most, more than the data says. Like maybe that's just worse than traumatic revelation, and I'm not willing to admit it. But uh, <laughs> I think that's the case. <laughs> Sorry. But the rest of them, the white blue and the green ones I just thought were excellent. Yeah, super cool. All right, let's take a quick ad break and we'll be back with the rest of the list. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. You know how in a draft there's so many things to keep track of at any given moment? Oh, for sure. While trying to balance mana curve, creature count, removal, card draw, you might find yourself at the end of the draft without that most important of elements, a win condition. It's important to take a moment when you can in the draft to take stock of what you have and what you need. Well, guess what? The same is true in life. Keeping track of all your responsibilities as well as making time for the activities and people we care about can be hard enough that it's easy to forget altogether about what you need from them and for ourselves. Therapy can give you the tools to find more balance in your life so you can keep supporting others without leaving yourself behind. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Find more balance with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Lords today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Lords. And now back to the show. Number 11, backup was an aggressive mechanic that was nerfed a bit by the presence of a forest dispersal and great instant speed interaction. Yeah, the backup was so, it was so interesting. I Mm -hmm. just, it was tough with a forest dispersal running around to like put your backup counter on a thing and swing into an untapped blue mana. That really, I think, helped keep backup in check because some of the rare backup cards were really pushed. Yeah, well, the more I thought about backup, the more I was like, this is such a good aggressive mechanic because it's sort of like it's flexible pseudo haste, right? So you're like, okay, do I want to give my five mana three, four flyer haste? If I do, then I can put its counter on this other thing and swing in. If you're right about a forest dispersal, and I would even maybe lump in cut down as like, or cut short rather, as a, you know, sort of feel bad against those cards because it's just so cheap to interact with them. But I still think this was a pretty good, all told, I think a good aggressive mechanic. I think one of the other things that was cool about it is you could kind of anticipate setting up turns down the road once you could do this. By backing up, you know, with a good backup card onto a creature, assuming your opponent's going to try to interact with it, and then maybe have that angelic intervention ready to go, or maybe you have that plus two, plus two and flying ready to go to stop whatever your opponent's trying to kill your creature that you just back up onto with. Mm-hmm. Number 12, Phyrexian mana flip cards were not gold cards. Paying two life for that other colored casting cost for with Phyrexian mana was trivially easy. Yeah, the real thing to distinguish here was the cost of the flip, right? Being able to flip for three mana was much better than flipping for four mana, much better than flipping for five mana, right? Stuff like Thalid or Kenra Spellspear, like being able to play those as two drops and then have the option to just flip them on turn three, I thought would be like, tempo negative or board presence negative or whatever but if you truly could know that it was in the clear like don't do that into final flourish mana or volcanic spite mana but if your opponent was tapped out and you knew you could do that for free it was actually pretty darn good yeah very strong and note that that's three pay two life four pay two life five pay two life as far as the the cost for flipping goes but i thought these cards were just awesome in the format real risk reward type decision making number 13 the official lords of limited archetype power rankings data be darned ben number one blue black oh yeah did this without looking at the data at all (laughs) number two blue white and then i think there's a smidge of a gap maybe or maybe the gaps after the third one i think there's also you could also say that there's a gap after the first one yeah personally um but yeah I, i would put red black at number three gumption number four blue green Number five, black green. Number six, blue red. Number seven, red white. Number eight, black white. Number nine, red green. And bringing up the rear, green white. You know, uh, friend of the pod and just sort of, you know, pod of his own and, and limited data analyst Sirkovitz messaged me. He was like, hey, I really like after we did our you know episode on black white and uh, blue red and all that, those are sort of like 
backdoor decks that we were interested in. He was like, got some data on green white for you if you want to mess around with it. And I, I was like, oh, cool. This is really interesting. Like looking at like what the cards are, like what the pick order might be. How do you get into the deck? I just could never do it. Like I'd even speculate on, on the brawler pick five, pick six, but then it was just so hard for all the goods to come together that I just never felt like it was reliable enough. And I ended up moving to, you know, good old trusty red, black or blue white. Yeah, I hear that. I, the only time green, white was successful for me was a glorious green, white Eorian deck. And it was awesome. Yeah, that's a win for Yorian, not a win for Green-White, I think. (laughs) (laughs) All right, moving on. Number 14. A lot of the archetype strategies, quote unquote, were overshadowed by just playing great rate cards or didn't really pan out at all in some cases. Yeah, about half of these, I think, were what they were supposed to be and good, right? Like red-black sacrifice, blue-white knights, blue-black whatever, multi-mill or value or whatever blue-black But it was wasn't like blue-black get your opponent to eight cards. That's what it was billed as, right? Like if we I were looking guess. at the signposts, it would be try to get eight cards in your opponent's graveyard. It was just play every good blue and black card. And sometimes later in the game, your opponent had eight cards in their graveyard and your cards got even more broken. Except weirdly, like that was only on a couple of commons, right? Like if we look at Halo Forager or Invasion of Amonkhet, those just clearly were like interested in interacting with the graveyards, but not necessarily with getting people to eight cards in their graveyard. Yeah, they were just insane cards. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. And then a lot of the green decks, I think, are just sort of, for me, like blue-green and black-green. I'm not thinking about those as streamlined two-color decks. Like very rarely was I in a blue-green deck or a black-green deck. And not to say that those color pairs didn't, I don't actually even know what blue-green was supposed to do, but black-green certainly played in in the counter incubate space. But you were splashing in those decks, like always. Yeah, that was a a base for, you know, playing green, getting other good cards in your deck, I think. And I'd say also some of the archetypes were sort of secretly other things like blue red had good convoke cards, but I feel like blue red was really when it was a blue red, like this is what we're doing. It was more artifacts and red white. Honestly, I feel like the more successful red white decks were equipment decks. Than they were backup decks. Yeah, completely agree about both those for sure. Number 15, if your deck didn't have a lot of power level at rare, you really needed to be aggressive and interactive to compete, right? I mean, this is a sort of classic don't be mid-range. Not that I think you couldn't be mid-range in the format. I think there were certainly ways to do so. But it was tough to be able to have a deck that could do both. Like, do both in terms of I can stop the aggressive decks early, but I can also compete with the blue value decks late. Yeah, I think a big level up for me in the format was just realizing that I could approach it kind of like, you know, Crimson Vow or something where if I didn't have the busted rares or I didn't want the game to go long, I could just try to get it over with. And I really needed removal, you know, to pick off when my opponent slammed their rare, but that I was a little too focused on battles early on, like some of the medium battles and just really trying to build a streamlined aggressive deck that, you know, played the great battles and got your opponent dead. Number 16, even with the power level of rares, the commons ran very deep. There's only a few cards in the format that I think are probably strictly just unplayable or bad. And it's a a stark difference. I think it was one, or maybe it was bro, one of the, the more recent 50 takes episodes. You know, I usually pull up the full spoiler just to sort of jog my memory of card interactions or decks or whatever, things that I want to talk about. And I've I definitely remember in one of those sets being like, wow, I have not played with like half of these cards. (laughs) Looking through the list of commons for this format, there's like maybe probably sub 10 that I've never included in a deck, like cards that I'm just like, you should probably never put that in a deck. And most of them either are like, you know, sort of like maybe necessary evils, some like suboptimal removal, but you'll play it if you have to. And then everything else kind of had a home somewhere. Yeah. Number 17, speaking of interactive, removal was critically important, especially efficient and unconditional removal. Removal was just like back with a vengeance in this format. Back with a vengeance and very efficiently costed. So we got deadly derision, four mana, kill anything, make a treasure, volcanic spite, deal three and smooth your draws. Final Flourish, minus two, minus two, or like very easy, I think, with Treasure and Uh just some disposable bodies running around to give something minus six, minus six for two mana. And then Afara's Dispersal, just bury in books your bury in books or fractal your bury your fractal token, whatever the thing was. Bury your pamphlet. That's yeah. what I, that's what I uh, <laughs> deemed it because it goes back to your hand. And the, the, the link between all of those, and then we can also lump in some uncommons like Collective Nightmare and Stoke the Flames and whatever, like they're all instants. 
all instant, so much good instant speed interaction, which was great. I think that was very important because there were broken rares running around too. Mm-hmm. Number 18, almost all non-green decks wanted to avoid no man's land where your opponent was stable on turns five through nine and at kind of a high-ish life total. That was a disaster area for proactive decks. Do you think this no man's land idea can be ported over to other formats? Do you think this is more of the don't be mid-range? Like this is a better way to describe don't be mid-range than we have in the past? Yeah, maybe. But I also think too, this format just felt especially Especially, I think it was apparent to me more because I just found myself thinking, okay, if my opponent doesn't play a bomb rare here, I'm going to win. And like on those turns, like it's mm-hmm. just the danger zone where, you know, once your opponent hits five mana, six mana, the haymakers are going to start raining and you really needed to have them not have one of the best ones, maybe to be able to squeak those last points of damage. Or if they were at 17, they had a lot of time to draw a banger card. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely true. Number 19, life totals mattered way less than normal or were just higher later than normal thanks to battles. And we we kind of pegged this early on, right? There was almost no incidental life gain in the format. And we'll, we'll shout out a couple of those cards a little later, which is why they were so important. Like the ways to incidentally gain life were so important because they were so few and far between. But the battles just sort of artificially buffered your life total or or quite uh, literally shrunk your life total like Invasion of Amonkhet. Yeah, I this is the format I have conceded at 20 life more than <laughs> any other format, like not close or conceded above 10 life. Yeah, just not close to close. The, the board got very powerful before your life total started to go down almost always. Yep. Number 20. There are a lot of similar cards where the classic version gets outshone by a new one. Right. We were really high on temporal isolation. Not really high, but we we're like, this looks like a good convoke spell. That's the the three and a blue convoke, put a thing second from the top or on the bottom of its owner's library. Forest dispersal was just miles better. Miles better, yeah. Remember this one? <laughs> yeah, and then there was aerial boost better than angelic intervention. If you had told me that even a couple weeks into the format, I would have told you you were crazy. You said that on our very show, my friend. I did. Yeah, (laughs) it's it's tough, but a boost is just better. Free is better than paying two mana. And like overgrown pests, we were like, this is ridiculous. This is so good. Two and a green, two, two, draw a land or a spell, whatever. I mean, is it that hot of a take to say that Wary Thespian is better? No, I would take Wary Thespian over pest pack one, pick one. If If I were inclined to draft green, I would make that pick. It's more important to what green needs, I think, and just like kind of a better body as like three power to defend stuff, maybe three power to pressure if you're not battling some one ones. And the surveil one on ETB and death kind of lets you draw a card in a way. Yeah, I'd buy it. And also three mana cards were just pretty interchangeable as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. We had to have one on the list. I'm sorry, Ben. Number 21. Companions are excellent. And extremely underrated for limited. I don't know why the narrative is like people are companioning too much. That I don't think that's the case. I'm sorry. I can't, I can't contribute to the companion discussion. Okay, I'm probably one of the people that's not companioning enough. I, I know. Here's what I'll say. Here's what I'm going to say about companions. And I'll, I'll say this to you. I think what people want to do is only focus on the things they're giving up and not never focus on that they start every game with an eighth card. That's what I'll that's what I'll say to the people out there who are like, but but I'm I'm losing this and this and this. Like, yeah, but you're gonna start the game with eight cards every time. It's pretty big. So I've I've instead of doing it a power rankings, I've grouped them into four groups. Responsible groups, Ben. I'm gonna be responsible. responsible groups. So the always companion in my mind, there's two. Yorian and Luris. In my video I made on our YouTube channel, I shouted out Yorian number one and Luris number two. I still stand by that. I think Yorian is Really good and really pretty darn easy to companion in the format. Loris, you got to jump through some hoops to do so, but it's incredibly powerful. And this is assuming you get them fairly early, right? Correct. In in pack one. In pack one. Uh, my second group is easy, but don't give up too much to do it. I've got Gigantha, Lutri, and actually, I think in this format, Zerda. I thought Zerda would be too tough because you couldn't put battles in your deck. Turns out. Not many battles are very good, and so giving up on battles isn't that big of a deal. Um, so, but you know, don't give up on the really good ones to Companion Zerda. The third group, hold on to if you want to Garuda, Obosh, and Karuga. You're gonna see a lot of good stuff pass you by if you're trying to do those, and not for the faint of heart. Achievement unlocked is the last group, Umori and Kahira. 
there you have it. I tried to keep it out of the podcast, listeners, and we got our dose of companions here in the last episode. You can't do it. You can't keep me down. <laughs> Number 22, the Golden Egg Award goes to... Oh, we had some discussion here. We should have, we should have ironed this one out ahead of time. We, we've got a tie, right? We have a tie. I, I'm awarding the Golden Egg Award to Nazumi Informant. So talk to me about Nazumi Informant before I, I give you what Nazumi Informant tied with. This is one in a black for the 1-1 one, one when ETBs your opponent discards a card. Huge roller coaster for this card. Liked it, then didn't like it, and then loved it, I think, by the end of the, the format. It just gives you a body that is perfect in every black deck. Mm-hmm. Black Red wants this, you know, can loot it up with a Beamtown Beat Stick to turn it into a relevant body. It's sacrifice fodder for all that stuff. Blue Black, same thing. Blue Black wants to play an attrition game, so really values the discard, puts a body, gives you something to convoke with. Black green just literally gives you a body to block, chump with, help you bridge the gap to the late game. Black white, I think, is its worst home, but you're just Mm -hmm. always getting a card from it. And people needed and wanted to make land drops for the most part in the format. So you're almost always getting a relevant card with it as well. And then just having the body lying around afterward was very good. Yeah, I I think this is a really good take. My vote for Golden Egg Award, unsurprisingly, goes to... Beamtown Beatstick. My my sale pitch for this is that it pushed aggressive strategies, right? Plus one, plus oh, and Menace was quite relevant. It allowed splashing with the treasures. It was synergistic with the sacrifice themes, with the equipment matters themes, highly underrated. I really thought it, it brought a lot of and heightened a lot of archetypes and strategies and cards. Yeah, I like Beamtown Beatstick. Honorable mention here to Halo Hopper, which we'll talk about a little later. Not nearly an actual golden egg. But a card that can be good in the right aggro deck with lots of one drops. I think I think some folks think the golden egg has to be colorless, has to be an artifact. Remember Forbidden Friendship, the the honestly what we never awarded the golden egg to, but wanted to shout out the OG glue card. Um, so it doesn't have to be a colorless artifact. Number 23, Sakdos was a powerful deck in the format. Another roller coaster for me, right? We had one of our early episodes. I was like, I drafted a red black deck and it stinks. Red black stinks. No, red black was my favorite deck in the format for sure. And just really clearly what it was supposed to be doing. It just took me a little while to figure it out. Yeah, you had to have the right pieces in the right places for sure. And it needed to be an aggressively slanted sacrifice deck, right? Couldn't spin the wheels too much. Right. It wasn't. I think that may be the thing that uh, threw me for a loop was I think it was billed as like sacrifice control or something, which I don't think was how I liked to build it. Number 24, Blue White Soldiers was a true to form Blue White Tempo deck. Uh, Ben. <laughs> just one last time i had to get one it last there. time there it is uh yeah i saw frank karsten tweeted about the deck and he called it blue white soldiers and i messaged ben i was like seems like frank has the same problem as you and ben was like just just a couple of smart guys not having any time to figure out uh what the actual actual creature type is in our defense it's I, always no, soldiers this is, it's never this is night such a bad defense it's not a bad defense white's always soldiers oh Knights the first time white is black white is knights Blue, white, not knights. Okay, okay, <laughs> whatever. It's a really, this is a really good deck, right? This, this was just and and very clearly outlined. You've got the signpost, uncommon lord that pumps all the knights. You've got knights as a very relevant creature type. You could get a lot of the good ones late. Just an excellent deck. Well, there was also just blue, white incubate too. Like blue, white was deep. So many different ways to build it too. Number 25, Unsealed and Acropolis was a card every black deck wanted. I can't tell you because I, I always just wanted one. I, I would play two sometimes, but usually your creature counts were a little precarious, especially if you had some incubate. Like maybe they were in the 12 to 13 range. So definitely wanted one Unseal. Probably didn't want two. And I'd, I'd see one in pack one or pack two, and I'd be like, I can get it later. And then I wouldn't get it, and then I would be very sad. Yeah, Unseal, huge. I think... My two most conceded two cards were Unseal on the stack and a flipped Invasion of Amonkhet on the stack. Mm, yeah. I think the amount of dual mill, right? Unseal, Invasion of Amonkhet, even like Halo Charge Scob or Flitting Gorilla, whatever, like the amount of dual mill cards that let you top from your graveyard made decking a real win con. But it wasn't like you that was your plan. It just sort of partway through the game, you realized, I think this is how it's going to go. And you started to have to calculate <laughs> library totals. You know, I thought that was pretty fun that it wasn't like turbo mill strategies, but it was a sub game of a lot of games with blue, blue black decks. Number 26, pour one out for the most misunderstood archetype of the format, black white. 
Yeah, everyone talking about black white being terrible. The data says black white is terrible. I really like this deck. I don't know if you did you ever get a chance to to play with the version I was describing? I never got the version you were describing. I played black white some more and did lose with it a fair amount towards the end of the format, but I never quite got the tiller cut shorts wheeling version that you outlined. I was on the lookout for it and I tried. Just didn't happen. Yeah, this this deck I think just played really well. It was sort of one of the true mid-range decks, I think, of the format. Like, this deck crushed aggro because of incidental life gain, the amount of interaction, cut shorts especially. And it had surprising late game. You just, I think, don't want to build it with an aggressive bend, which is sort of counterintuitive to what white does in every other color pair. Yeah. Number 27, the land cyclers were... Good, not great. I mean, I really that thought it seems generous even a little bit. Yeah, maybe that is too generous. I don't know. Like the single pipped ones, I think were better than the double pipped ones in a sense. Just none of these were very good. I thought Alabaster Host Intercessor was going to be great. The amount of removal that existed in the format, I think really, if you weren't snag, like this snagging an incubate token was pretty Felt cool. great. Yes. But whenever you had something underneath it, you were like, just the, the clock was ticking. You were just waiting to get blown out with it yeah where i wanted the land cyclers the most was when i had archpriest of shadows the rare four four with backup one death touch and whenever a creature dealt combat damage to a player battle return a creature card from your graveyard to the battlefield that was when i was actually like okay want a copy or two of these land cyclers in my deck well or the black white rare invasion that returned a permanent like it was very fun to be able to especially you know you're in a white x or a black x deck and then use one of those cyclers to not only find the land to splash it but then be able to get it back that was pretty good good show maybe more for reanimate than anything (laughs) they just they just didn't really pan out number 28 omen hawker was way closer to a mana dork than it seemed at first glance yeah i mean just this card did a lot i think thankfully to convoke existing a lot in blue right so you could literally use it as a mana dork for some other spells but then a double mana dork to flip your incubate to you know you got to eventually play with it with beamtown beat stick just you know moving around those equip costs even if you had the land cycler you could just use it to pay for the land cycling cost there was just a lot of places you could use the omen hawker number 29 counter strategies suffered from the prevalence of bounce spells. So not only aggressive strategies, but because a lot of those aggressive strategies like green-white counters or red-white backup, those just it was just so tough to play those against islands. Yeah, I think even incubate tokens. You could even extend that yeah. to incubate tokens a little bit, just more than even plus one plus one counters or backup. Yeah. Number 30, Phyrexian Sensor does not play nice with battles. So if you haven't experienced this interaction, I actually, I think for the first time experienced this happening and it was my opponent because I barely play Phyrexian Sensor. They had Sensor, cast something pre-combat, then attacked down their own battle. And I was like, go for it. (laughs) (laughs) No, no blocks. And then their battle goes to exile and then does not get cast because Sensor says can't cast more than one uh, non-Phyrexian spell a turn. Wah, wah. Yeah, card was very powerful, but very situationally powerful. Mm-hmm. Number 31, War Historian has reach. Number 32, Traumatic Revelation made targeted hand disruption playable and limited. Where did you land on this card? Another roller coaster for you, I would say. Great. Always want a copy <laughs> in black decks. I'm serious. I, I want, like, similar to uh, the Unsealed the Necropolis, I always want a copy of Traumatic Revelation in my black decks one copy at least yeah i'm i'm lower on it than that and then i think the the community at large shout out to gift of completion that i'm holding on to for dear life but yeah i think this really did it it sort of harkened back to toll of the invasion from war the spark right like that was really good targeted hand disruption turns out when you attach a small body or an optional larger body to this card makes it pretty darn good yeah, this is not quite on toll. That's where I would fall. No. Like no. good, but not quite on toll's level. Number 33, Joyful Storm Sculptor is one of the strangest signposts we've ever seen. This is the three blue red, two three makes two elementals as well. And whenever you cast a spell with Convoke, you deal damage to your opponent and up and one battle they control or all battles they control, whatever. This is very accurately points to what the color pair wants to do, but is very bad for the archetype. So bizarre. Yeah, this falls into the completely interchangeable five mana value cards that you could cast in the format. And it's so weird, like you could be trying to draft this deck 
but never want to take this card or like be like, yeah, blue red's open. Awesome. Oh no. Joyful storm sculptor is the payoff. Number 34, lots of colorless fixing, but splashing should also be done sparingly. Yeah. I mean, skittering surveyor, urn, the land cyclers, even the, 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 the flywheel racer, like that's a lot of colorless fixing plus dual lands plus greens fixing, but you just really need to make sure the splashes are worth it because you end up having to run filler. Well, yeah, there's just several layers here, right? I think if you're green, you should be splashing pretty aggressively unless you're green, white or green, red. But then in the other colors, you have to check the box of not like a gumption style tempo proactive deck before you're interested in splashing, right? Because those streamlined decks really want to be streamlined and get the game over with. So sometimes it was worth giving up on splashing a bomb rare just to make your deck do the thing more consistently. So it was it was a, a very unique deck that had a powerful enough rare that wasn't like making your deck more <laughs> awkward by splashing and also wasn't green. There were just a lot of boxes that needed to be checked. Yeah, so many caveats. I think I would I would say the other place you could splash single pipped stuff um, was red black. You know, where if you had treasures from Beatstick, from Deadly Derision, from Furnace Reigns, you, you could get there pretty consistently, I think, without having to impact your mana base. But that's the key. Not having to just jam two off-color basics into your deck. I mean, that's always not the thing you want to do. But I think it was really tempting in this format because of the power level of cards that you were like, well, I, I got to play Sunfall. It's like, well, you actually really don't because <laughs> you're just going to lose to your own mana. Number 35, Norn's Inquisitor is illegally good. I mean, this... This is just Blade Splicer at Uncommon, right? It's better than Blade Splicer. <laughs> it's better than Blade Splicer because it sticks around on the battlefield and makes all your other Phyrexian flip cards better. Yeah. Like, it's, yeah. it's a 1-1 one, one that has to be killed with removal. And, and why does it have two relevant creature types? Why is it a Phyrexian knight? Every time I saw that this was a knight, I was like... That seems illegal. It is illegal. It's <laughs> illegal. It's just not fair. Yeah. Number 36. It was possible to loop four cards and never deck yourself with as far as dispersal plus Oracle of Tragedy. That was the one in a blue one three that gave you the option to shuffle four cards, mana value three or greater from your graveyard into your library. I can't believe it. I love a, a loop as much as the next person. I never got to do this. Oof, you didn't live. I didn't live. I, I truly feel that way. I never got to live. Number 37, Halo Charged Scob was a must include with Breach the Multiverse. I would even say like as as small potatoes as Unsealed in Acropolis, it was a must include. Ooh, really? I mean, like that's just a way to never lose basically. Yeah, way to never deck yourself again. Yeah, it's real. I mean, Halo Charge Scob was just sneaky good in that sense. I think in the sense of like, I mean, certainly when you had a really powerful spell like Breach, um, which we'll talk about in just a second. Um, but <laughs> I, I think in terms of, well, I can get to the late game. This was just a way to build your own win con. Yeah. Number 38, my list of top five most egregious rares. In the number one slot, Sunfall. Edged out closely, number two, Chrome Host Seed Shark. Number three, Atali Primal Conqueror. Number four, Boonbringer Valkyrie. And number five, Breach the Multiverse. I largely agree with this list. I don't like to complain about rares very much. Sunfall is the most egregious to me on this list. Um, honestly, Chrome Host Seed Shark is very good but is the card on this list that I actually, I would put this, I put would not put this in the top five for me. Ooh, it almost got number one for me. My honorable mention list includes Glissa, Invasion of Fiora, and my number two on this list is Zephyr Singer. I wanted to put Zephyr Singer on the list, and I was like, nah, that's gotta be just me. But I didn't no. lose to Zephyr Singer so much, but I won so much Zephyr with Singer. Zephyr Singer. It's talk so good. A, talk about illegal, like, because the problem with Zephyr Singer is you're like, Ah, not only is a 3-4 <laughs> Flying Vigilance a problem. For like, one mana. <laughs> I need to deal with this, but now all of your two your two and your three drop now a Flying 2. Like, I talk about cards I conceded to at 20 life. I just look, look at my hand and I'm like, do I have six removal spells? <laughs> no, I guess I lose. Yeah, I like the Zephyr Singer shout out. I almost put that on there over Boonbringer Valkyrie. Mm, yeah, Valkyrie also just feels so bad. Especially if you are playing, sure, if you're playing No Man's Land Green, Boonbringer Valkyrie isn't that sad. If you're trying to play like Blue White Tempo or Red Black Aggro and your opponent casts Valkyrie, you're done. Done. 
Number 39, speaking of these rares, with two excellent sweepers in black and white, too many sweepers in red, you really, really need to be careful about overextending in this format. Like asking yourself when your opponent has access to double white and double black about Sunfall and about Invasion of Fiora is really important. Yep. Number 40, there were cool combos to shoot for in the format, like Voldar and Thrillseeker combining with Yargle and Multani. Just doming your opponent out for 20 damage. You also did this, right? Oh, I did this for sure. Yeah. That is incredible to me. Yeah, I, I guess I was just too busy companioning. I didn't <laughs> too busy companioning, that is I, for sure. I didn't do any like I saw these things, I saw the screenshots of them, but I was never trying to trying to shoot for the moon with these uh, these uh combos, but they were sweet. Number 41, Herbology Instructor and Tangled Skyline were very important pieces to help multicolor green decks stabilize. I mean, that that uh Kahira companion deck that I had, I had this Ooh. insane game that, that I beautiful. won off the back of scroll shifting Tangled Skyline to not only gain five life against an aggro deck, but have that instant speed five five to flip. Um scroll shift a little a little bit of an underrated card with the uh, incubate enchantments, I think. But yeah, this this these were two of the very few ways to gain life in the format. Yeah, nothing more depressing, I think, than being a proactive deck and your opponent playing turn two herbology instructor just mm-hmm. takes the wind out of your sails. Right. Not only not only do they just gain three life, which is important, but the one three body was a problem. And then you know that like the game is probably gonna go long enough where that's gonna kill like you're like, do I have to I have to spend a removal spell on this thing now? Tough spot. Number forty two. The format was full of situationally powerful cards. So exhibit A battles, I think in the right situation, very broken or pretty bad if you're behind or your opponent is stable. Ways to target artifacts and enchantments like Ravenous Sailback and Sunder the Gateway just like went from, you know, medium to just, oh, what? You played a two mana Flame Tongue Kavu? How is that fair? Yeah, like your turn two play as Daxos or Timurit and your opponent goes turn two Sunder the Gateway, kill your creature, make a two two incubate. Like, well, even, it's just such a huge advantage. Even playing Flywheel Racer on two. You're like, look, I, you're like kind of embarrassed. You're like, look, I, <laughs> I know, like, please don't judge me. I just needed a little bit of fixing. And your opponent's like, that's done. And you're like, no, I needed that. <laughs> I know, yeah. Frexian Sensor also like hugely matchup dependent, but also game state dependent, right? Yeah. When you're the aggressor, Frexian Sensor is backbreaking. But when you're behind, you almost can't cast it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Not, not, not being able to double spell. And then Sandstalker Moloch in that cycle of uh, the like color hoser or enemy color matters uh, cycle of uncommons was just ridiculous against the two best colors in the format. Yeah, just four two flash draw a card and get, get card selection draw a card. Very, very strong. Number 43, the 5-5 Incubate token that came along with Converter Beast was a huge problem. I mean, we we sort of shouted this in the crash course that it felt like Chimney Rabble, but this was just in a much more juiced set that Converter Beast being so strong wasn't even the best green common, wasn't even like a, a pull anywhere. Like, did it really have a home? You know, f- felt like a role player sometimes. Yeah, four mana four four has not quite gotten there lately. Four mana five five mm-hmm. turns out did get there, and even That's... even paying the two mana tax the following turn. Yeah, for sure. Number forty four, dogs and frogs was a great <laughs> alternate strategy when you tried to shoehorn your way into blue white knights and didn't quite get there. Is dogs and frogs your label? I don't think so. I would assume that's Ham and Lola. So Tarkir Dune Shaper is the dog. That's the the one yeah. two that can flip into a four three trample, and then Halo Hopper is the frog. Okay, yeah. I, 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 can, I don't think I can take credit for that, no. I've never heard dogs and frogs. I love that. That's very I just, good. I don't yeah. know that I've ever heard it. the deck called that, but people definitely were calling Tarkir Dune Shaper the dog. Gotcha. Yeah, that's pretty pretty dang good. Um, Yeah, the key to Halo Hopper was one drops, right? A, a mass of one drops so that Halo Hopper could come down on turn two was, I think, pretty dang important. All right, Ben, number 45, Hirobi Death's Whisper. Great build around or garbage unplayable. This is two black black for a 4-4 flyer. Whenever a creature becomes the target of a spell or ability, sacrifice it. Garbage unplayable. I agree, but I've I did get got by this a little bit. So, I was playing a grindy game against a red black opponent, then they slammed Hirobi Death's Whisper. I was like, "Okay, who cares?" Then I saw Trailblazing Historian and then <laughs> mousing over it and I was like, "Oh, yes, so sick. They're going to misplay and they're going to give haste to their Hirobi and they're going to have to sacrifice it. Awesome." And then they targeted my creature. 
with trailblazing historian and i was like oh no royal assassin baby they have a machine gun now and backup even did it i think this was i mean i think Garbage unplayable is more likely the case, but I was pretty impressed by the potential build around status of Herobi. I hadn't thought about it in that way. The problem is your opponent's backup creatures all just kill Correct. it. Correct. Like there's Correct. just too many ways to incidentally target it. Well, and something like Trailblazing Historian was not a card I was hoping to run generally, and so that also sort of was a knock against it. Number 46, setting up a high value target plus Cyba Cryptomancer. That's the one in a blue 01 with hexproof that has backup one to give something else hexproof potentially was game winning. You know what else was sick was Cryptomancer plus Ozolith, like that giving two counters, but then also just Cryptomancer as a hexproof creature to continually dump counters on and your opponent can't say boo about it. That never really happened for me. Did that happen for you? It happened against me. Oh, dear. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I mean, you know, blue green, not a not a great spot to get into a lot of the time, but uh but yeah, Cryptomancer did work. No, my my most my most often played Cryptomancer was in Luris decks. Need that protection, baby. Need that protection. It but just felt so good every time it was cast. Yeah. Well, and I think partially because the O1 body just did stuff. Like not like I mean, mostly just you know you can sacrifice it in black decks or chump block a battle, whatever. Like you just got to do something with both parts of this card. Convoke for sure too. Yeah. There you go. Number 47, Arachnoid Adaptation was a big overperformer. I'm sorry, what's this? Th what are these three words at the end of this point, Ben? From the data, I put that in there. Wow. Without looking at the data, I will add. Adaptation was excellent. There's a lot. That's a lot for a one mana trick. Plus two, plus two, reach and untap. So hard. Like, I couldn't, I can't tell you how many turns because of the arena pause earlier than seeing it cast. I was like, oh, you have this in your hand. And just every turn, I was like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do about that. I don't, I don't know what I'm supposed to do about that, but you have it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, really tough. Really good card. Number 48, Marauding Dreadship and Knight of the New Coalition were armies in a can. Is Rectangle Theory here to stay? Oh, for sure. Rectangle Theory, theory is made a home. All right. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I really pegged Marauding Dreadship early. I think that was my number three red common in the crash course. Knight of the New Coalition, not so much, but double knights, baby, plus... What I really didn't read was how good Vigilance and Convoke was. Yes. Knight of the New Coalition was my preferred four drop in blue-white, for sure. Yeah. I, I, which is crazy over Bulleslinger. You would think like, oh, Bulleslinger is going to be nuts. But Knight was was better. I think red-white wanted Bulleslinger more. I, I agree. Well, but I think just the more of the, uh, the plus two, plus two flying Convoke trick you had, the more Knights you wanted. Yes. Number 49. Mom was maybe the most replayable draft format ever. I think that's largely thanks to, I mean, the, the, the balance, the depth, the multiverse legends for sure. But is it the GOAT? Is it the greatest of all time? It is not the greatest of all time for me, but I think it is. I would give it the award of the most replayable draft format. That's the award I would give it, but I wouldn't give it the greatest of all time. Yeah, it's hard for me. I think other than like nostalgia, for like, I'm just trying to think like, okay, I really like Throne of Eldraine. That's my goat. Why is that better than this? I can't come up with a reason. I think, I think I'm going to say it. I think this is the greatest Whoop. of all time for me. Wow. Oh, just laying it down. huh? I just can't, I just can't come up with a reason why it isn't like there. All those things we outlined in the first point, power, synergy, build arounds, good aggro decks, good five color control decks. Like it's really hard for me to come up with a reason why this isn't my favorite format. Ooh. I think this cracks like top 10 for me for sure, probably top five, but I don't think it is goat for me. Number 50, the best thing March of the Machines Limited gave us was a new way to approach drafting decks with hashtag gumption. Planting your flag and drafting a deck with a plan off of role player cards is a great strategy and I think it can be carried over elsewhere. I'll be curious to see, but I feel like you and I had a bit of a level up in this format with this approach. Yeah, well, I, it was twofold, I think, right? Yeah. It, it was, there was the week where like, you could just force red black mm -hmm. because it was wide open. So being being on the lookout for maybe a top tier deck that is not number one, and as a result is more open than it should be as far as being forcible, but then also just knowing which cards you're likely to see late and building towards us. I think that was what it was more for me was having a picture of what 
the end deck needed to look like and knowing when I knew that I could get there and just locking it in and holding on for dear life, you know, that it was that it was worth missing out on powerful cards or hedging on powerful cards to know with certainty that I was going to get into a good strategy in a good archetype. Well, because it's kind of like reverse engineering the draft in a way. You start with like, oh, I'm seeing these late Swordsworn Cavaliers and Protocol Knights. How was I supposed to get into the deck, though? It's like, you're supposed to get into the deck because you know you're going to see those late. And so reverse engineer, start by with that, start with that assumption, and then you'll be able to end the draft by reaping those rewards. Same with red black. Like, oh, I always see jury 11th pick, or I see beat sticks 11th pick. Okay, reverse engineer and just navigate your way with that assumption. Well, and I think some of it too was how powerful the individual cards were. Like that's where the gumption came from, right? You were, you knew red black was forcible and you were telling me like, if you're going to do this band, you got to have gumption. Yeah. Because you know I like to speculate and I like to waffle around and I like to hedge. And it doesn't work if you do that. Right. It doesn't work if you do that. But also, I think this format is more prone to have you do that if you don't have a clear, focused plan of what you want your deck to look like. Because you're going to see a random preening champion, seventh pick sometimes or sixth pick sometimes. That doesn't mean blue is open. There just was a blue rare and a blue uncommon or a blue black uncommon that were totally absurd that got taken ahead of the printing champion, you know? So Mm -hmm. the power level of the format meant that you were more likely to see randomly late powerful cards, but that you weren't necessarily supposed to speculate on those cards, certainly if you were employing this style of drafting. Yeah. So I'd be curious to see if we can outline this in future sets. I was already trying to think about this in the past, but it's hard once like the format is at a close. So I'm interested to to sort of scope these kinds of decks out in the future. All right. Any parting thoughts before we go here? I love my mom. You You love your your mom. Oh, so wholesome. (laughs) I will say, Lord of the Rings, you're on notice. Because you've got some big shoes to fill, and it is summer, and I need a good draft format. I'm going to be annoyed if March of the Machine goes away, and Lord of the Rings is a core set. So Lord of the Rings, just just fair warning, you've been put on notice. You better be pretty good. The teacher has given a stern warning. And with that, great place to wrap up the episode. Thank you, as always, to Salty Pretzels for our intro and outro music. Make sure you give it a listen. Thank you so much to Cool Stuff, Inc. for sponsoring this podcast. Head on over there where they've got cool stuff in stock and use code LOL at checkout to let them know we sent you over there and, more importantly, to get 5% off anything you purchase. You can find all of our content on our website, lordsoflimited.com. There's access to our tier lists, to all of our episodes, to our Twitch streams, our YouTube channel, all that good stuff. Oh, and our merch. That's right. We've got merch. All that over at lordsoflimited.com. You can find us on social media. On Twitter, I'm at Lord Tupperware. Ben is at Mr. Metronome. And you can tweet at the podcast at Lords of Limited. If you've got any feedback about the show or any questions, shoot us an email at lordsoflimited at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll catch you next week for another episode of Lords of Limited. Thanks, everybody. See you later. That's how you do it. That's how you do it on Arena, I guess. Anyway. <laughs> okay, <Jeff>. um, <laughs> uh, We'll be Deep cutting that. there for all the Deep. Survivor fans yeah, and MTG fan crossover. The 200 people crossover. We'll be cutting that from the episode.